I've spent a lot of time in, 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 in Europe and the dinners are about three hours, maybe three and a half hours long. That's so unlike an acquired being, episode. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And that's the whole point is that social connection is not something that's transaction. It's fluid. It, it's fun. It's playful. And, and so the idea is people are coming out beaming, smiling after a dinner as opposed to, um, you know, this sort of rigid structure of a typical dinner with an agenda. There is no, no agenda. agenda. Yeah. No agenda. I don't have an agenda. The agenda, agenda is to come together. Yeah. <laughs> Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to Season 11, Episode 5 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I am the co-founder and managing director of Seattle-based Pioneer Square Labs and our venture fund, PSL Ventures. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I'm an angel investor based in San Francisco, where we were for this very episode. Indeed. And we are your hosts. Last episode, we told the four-hour story of Benchmark, the legendary venture capital firm that stayed small while all their competitors ballooned in size. At the end of the episode, we mentioned that their partner meeting had this dinner at the end of it, where the five equal partners of Benchmark sit down for an open-ended discussion, sometimes with a special guest. Well, we were talking with the Benchmark partners about that last episode, and they invited us to be their guest for one of these dinners, and for the first time ever, record it, even on video. So we are so pumped to share this with all of you. We got to ask them about a lot of the open questions we had, about the future of balancing those out-there consumer investments with their B2B portfolio, how they think about making sure that they see that next world-changing company, the pressure of inheriting a top venture firm and trying desperately not to mess it up. And of course, there's some good war stories from the portfolio companies in there too, David. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, this was such a special episode on so many fronts. This is, by far is a record on an acquired episode for a number of guests that we have concurrently. Oh, we had seven microphones running. We had to buy like $5,000 worth of gear just for this episode. I think it was worth it though. Next time, I need to account for the fact that there will be uh, violent laughter when I'm setting the audio levels, because we just had a blast, and you'll definitely hear it when you listen. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there. That's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, 
run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what? 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Well, we have an update to the merch store. We got many requests about this. Gosh, why isn't there a dad hat? Well, we called up the good folks at Cotton Bureau and we did some horse trading because I wanted a really good one. You know, I wanted one that was embroidered, that felt nice. So for the next couple weeks, there'll be a limited edition dad hat embroidered with ACQ right there on the front. So get them before they're gone at acquired.fm slash store. All right, join the Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack. The LP show has been on fire recently. For those of you who are paying LPs out there, we just dropped an interview on the Profitable Growth Playbook for B2B companies with Jale Rezai, the CEO and co-founder of Mutiny. That is live just for LPs right now for another week or so, and then it will hit the public feed. So you can become a LP at acquired.fm slash LP or get those episodes after they're made public by searching for the LP show in your favorite podcast player. Now, without further ado, on to the dinner. And listeners, as always, this show is not investment advice. David and I may have investments in the company we discuss, and uh, this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Okay, so our first question is, what are we doing here? Like, what are we at? And Peter, it feels like you would be the best person to explain this dinner tradition. Why do we have a dining room in the (laughs) office? On the 19th floor. (laughs) When I joined Benchmark... There was great optimism between Bill and me about, you know, injecting new practices, new habits, new ideas into the firm. And Bill had just read the Ben Franklin uh, biography. And Ben had four dinners, if I recall, a week. But they were like going deep on finance, then on, you know, chemistry, and then on life sciences. And uh, and he took the catalyst to say, like, why aren't we doing dinners? And anyway, we had this like playful, you know, experiment where we said, well, let's try a few of them. And then we did a, a big dinner towards the end of the year. And I think it was like 2007, maybe 2006, 2006. It was actually my first year. And, uh, it was amazing. Like time stood still. And, and we realized just, like just the partners or no, we had four outside guests, uh, Katarina Fake, uh, Mike McHugh, yep. um, Gideon Yu. And Martin Mikos, if I'm not mistaken. And it was electric. And we came out of that. Bill had this habit. He'd always call me in the car after, like, what did you think of the dinner? I'm like, ah, I think it was fun, but I want to go to bed. He's like, ah. and alcohol had been served. People were in Like, a, it was his baby. He wanted to, like, keep working on the concept. Well, well we, 
we danced with this idea. And so the concept that, that I came to is that firms are full of strategies that aren't coupled to reality. And if you look at a venture firm, eventually it's just a collection of habits. And this is stealing from William James, who I think was the greatest American thinker, um, that, you know, we are nothing but an amalgamation of our habits and habits. So character, they so everything. So the idea that we should be nurturing curiosity, which is the essential lifeblood of the firm needed a habit. And, and, and Mondays, as much as they're an attempt at that, you sit around the office and you joke around, you try and d- dive into topics, they're, they're limited. And so the dynamic range of a dinner with, um, you know, uh, an open-ended, no agenda, wild explorations of the most bizarre things your partners might be curious about. And I've definitely gotten a few, you know, rat holes that, with this group <laughs> and they pulled me out. Uh, you know, it just became one of those things that honored the purpose of the firm, which is the sense of like constantly learning and, and activating our curiosity. But, um, in a collective effervescence of a group that we could never get in a one-on-one dinner. Um, one of the challenges, which is being manifest right now, is that <laughs> in a table, you know, where there's a head of the table, you can get a dominant participant in the dinner <laughs> conversation. But the problem with the table is that you either have a rectangular uh, structure, which carries power structure embedded in it, um, or you have a circular table, which atomizes the group. And so I'd seen this table, uh, The Seven, by Jean-Marie Massoud, who's a French designer, and um, it ran with the idea. Something would be organic that could expand and collapse, but most essentially destruct or deconstruct power centers and, and create a non-hierarchical construct with intimacy. But this table ends up being... Um, Ole Lundberg designed it. We gave him, I gave him a hand sketch and, and he ran with it. And, uh, it's, um, allowed Ole's lifestyle to meaningfully upgrade because the number of people <laughs> with means that have sat at this table that decided they need a table just like this. Uh, well, so. and the people you have at this table, just for listeners who don't understand the gravity of this dinner, it tends not to just be the five partners. You have pretty esteemed guests come to these. It's the spotlight of attention, which is the biggest gift you can give to another human being on an individual. And more often than not, it's somebody that we haven't worked with or invested in. And uh, I think you guys might have mentioned this in the podcast that uh, we've had dinners with people like um, Dylan Field. And, oh, you come away. You're swept off your feet. You're like, why? this is why we exist, to serve people like that. Um, Toby from Shopify. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos has been um, – we travel to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Do you bring the table? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not portable. The, the yeah. Dyna side, Seattle side, where we, in we've, LA. We, we've been in L. We've been in LA. We've been in Seattle. And I think yeah. you can tell yeah. just from you can see the ethos of the firm in the structure of the table too, which is that you can't have a sidebar conversation in this table because everybody right. else can hear it, and so it's all one conversation, and that. Um, you know, sort of coming from a, from the outside and then being part of Benchmark, like the one conversation element of everything that we do on Monday is so powerful because we're all tuned in on whatever's being discussed. And sometimes it's not great news. Sometimes it's good news. Sometimes it's tough news, whatever it is. Getting the whole group tuned in, I think, is like the, is the essential power of this structure. And I really like the table for that. (laughs) I mean, I remember, I'll never forget early in my venture career, when I was a venture capitalist, uh, I remember an older partner taking me aside and saying, like, if you want to bring something up at the partner meeting, 
you need to have had a side conversation with everybody else before you bring it up right. at the table. Which is so it's funny because like, Bruce, when we were talking to Bruce Dunleavy, he was like, our one rule was no pre-selling a deal. Like right. you can't walk around the hallway and say like, hey, I'm super excited about this one later. Like if you, you know, I think you'll be excited too. Like vote for it. <laughs> That's uh, one of the great perks, especially for somebody who's come from another venture firm to benchmark. So you don't write a memo. Mm-hmm. And it's because the memo, you know, when you're a memo really is a vehicle to, to, you know, obviously give background on a company, all the work you've done, but it is also a little bit a pre-sell before the company comes it, in to present. It's, it's persuasion. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of hours get consumed by the writing of it and the reading of others and not to, to have like a founder come in then. And there's none of that. Hmm. It's a blank sheet and you just get to have the experience of the founder. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a nice. Sarah, okay, Sarah uses you, this phrase, which is truth seeking, which I think is a really good yeah. one, which is it's like, yeah, does it, does the, is the company incredible? And does that company have a chance to be one of these few extraordinary companies every decade? And like, that's, that's actually all that matters. Like, that's all that matters for all of us. And if you find that, um, then you really don't need to sell it. Yeah. You don't need to sell it. Do, do you have any sort of format of codifying your thinking? Because like memos serve the purpose of forcing you into clarity of thought in addition to creating an art, a sales artifact. And so how, what things do you do in your partnership to gain clarity of thought? I would say the memo is a crutch often because – Yes, it can force you into clarity of thought, but it also allows you to fill in blanks that the entrepreneur themselves are not saying. And it pushes a sort of bias and perspective that maybe the firm has, or maybe you have a sector thesis. And it's like, there's a lot of manifestation of ego when you put a memo together. Not having a memo does not replace work and does not replace Mm -hmm. the calls and does not replace the conversations. And what I find so amazing about our Monday discussions, when you're relaying the calls you have, relaying the notes you took on those calls, you're actually telling exactly what you've discovered without the overarching bias, without your ego pushing into it. You're not pushing anything into the firm. You're just saying like, this is what I've discovered. We all just heard from the entrepreneur. It either confirms their views and sort of like how they want to rove through this market, or we found some challenges. And so it's it's that sort of like and I think you all mentioned it on your podcast, which is that when you talk to benchmark partners, it feels like we don't have some hard stop. We can just keep going. Yeah. And that is the beauty of that Monday meeting, which is that we don't have a next topic to jump to. It's not like we're working through a list. And so we allow ourselves to have that open Dude, discussion. There's an agenda. <laughs> you got to go through the CRM and update the CRM. And if you haven't updated your CRM, you're going to get... Negative points. Negative points. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't see all these all these calls logged in the CRM. <laughs> I also think that like the, the artifacts, like they live in the memories and the live stories of the partners. And so like you sort of if there's a curiosity in that direction, call up Mac, call up each other, call up Mac, call up Bill. Um and so the, those learnings, those stories, that wisdom sort of still still walks. Um, and one of my first experiences, this unbounded agenda on a Monday was 
I brought up. It's uh, so uncomfortable <laughs> for a new partner yeah, coming in. It's like no, this. actually, it could just be for like you. You know that that's going to be what Monday is like coming when your first yeah. Monday. Because four read, of the five of you yeah. were GPs at other firms. Yes. yes. Before this. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So we've all ready, boys. And like you talk to Bruce or whoever, and it's like just Monday has no agenda. Like I get that. Then, like you then, can intellectually get yeah, it. Yeah, you get it. And then I remember my first Monday. And sorry, I interrupted yeah, you yeah, on your course. first Monday. But you sit there and you keep on waiting <laughs> for like, well, when are we going to talk about pipeline? Or when are we going to talk about, you know, the portfolio <laughs> updates? You know, and then it like doesn't happen. And instead it's like these random roving conversations. But then... But then the you know yeah. the topic of substance will come out in a natural way. You have to really enjoy uh, being around each other in order for that to work. One of the things we didn't talk about for our dinners is like we really you know you just by getting to engage on these topics that aren't just the business of our day you know what we do every day. You just get to enjoy being together, and then get, and you get to know each other in different dimensions. Some of the stories that get told. Um, Last week was a deep dive in psychedelics. Yes. So, so. Mm. And so, for a deal or for, <laughs> no, for no, a deal? No, Prepare for a deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Expansive. Mind. There may be one. Yes. But it is. It is. It is critical to then what happens on the Mondays and and everything in between. What is, so, Sarah, you and Tatham both mentioned. Lack of structure, lack of memo is not a replacement for doing the work yeah. that I assume happens during the week. I'm curious, what does and the work mean? And in the meeting mean? itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no reason why we can't call somebody that we want to talk to when right. we're together. Yeah. Do you put them on speakerphone? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, you're on speaker with all of us. We have a couple questions for you. <laughs> what is the, How do entrepreneurs react when they get a call from the partnership? Hey, it's Benchmark. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I think it's... It's surprising to everybody, whether it's entrepreneurs or whether it's like people that we call in the industry, where it's just like, hey, we're all together. This question came up and we want to talk to you about it. It's like, oh, wow. Like, that's actual teamwork. Like, you're working together as a team. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you both have investigated the venture industry so much that sort of like all the stories that are told at Benchmark are all about the group going and accomplishing something and there's a lot of like we did this we did that and then this happened and then we did this and then i think broadly the stories are natural in the industry naturally tend to be one person like there's like the venture capitalist Mm. is the hero and the truth is that's hardly the truth and part of that is all five of us deeply engaged on that and working as a team for that and so when you call somebody together you're exercising that motion. You're exercising that muscle. So one of the things we spent a bunch of time talking about on the first episode was what the psychology must be like, Ben and I speculating, of being a around this table here as a partner with you guys. And our thesis was that for a ordinary group of people, it would trend towards mediocrity. But if you have a cultural norm of we are all bringing it all the time, <laughs> then it trends towards greatness. And, and why would it trend toward mediocrity? Well, because it's the line that uh, a bunch of other GPs said about Benchmark when it was getting started was that's communist capitalism mm. and it's going to trend. It's going to end up like communism. Right. Um, but obviously that is not the case here. I'm curious what that like feels like for you guys on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, knowing We've got this partnership, this relationship. We spend all this time together. 
but obviously we each need to like really bring it. So right before Sarah was joining, do you remember this? Yeah, of course. This is like six, five and a half, six years ago. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So she texts me on a Saturday. She's like, do you, so it hadn't been announced. We hadn't, we hadn't decided anything. Like it was like we were, but we were close. And she's like, do you have time tomorrow? Okay. <laughs> um, and so anyways, we got brunch at the pub and she's like, Eric, okay. What, what's our job at benchmark? Like this is, this is V3 or whatever benchmark. Like what, what is it? And I was like, Sarah, <laughs> job number one, don't fuck it up. <laughs> No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Don't fuck it up. Because I, I think there is a real risk that you, you could imagine a risk where you feel like you're born on third base or whatever the right. analogy you want to use is. And, and I think one of the things that you have to hope for is that every single person who you, you add feels like, hey, I'm in service of the entrepreneur and it's my job to find and work with and help. The next eBay, the next, the next, yeah, the next you know. great the next great entrepreneur and and believe me i wake up every fucking morning like hungry that i don't want to be the beginning of the end yeah you want to contribute and where, where um, does and that, that come really from for you personally why why are you because you don't have to I mean, because i'm a failed entrepreneur I think that's I I, th I think that really is is it for me, which is I know what I know how hard it is because I did it and failed. Did not live up to expectations. Did not live up to expectations, and I started a company and it was really hard and it didn't work. And um, and so I think you just like realize like how how difficult it is. There's a lot. There's so the privilege of the job is. There are people out there who are super smart, who have an idea that's often against the grain that want to change the world in some way. And, you know, the, it's, it's doing what you can to help them. And, um, and so I, I, I think about that all the time. And, and I think that is a, that's a chip on your shoulder or whatever to, to go prove. I, the, the, um, there are different motivational systems. For yeah, fair, fair enough. And fair enough. That's I, I think some part of them, all of us, some of those motivational systems are fear-based. Don't fuck it up. Some are joy-based. And I remember saying to Bruce, we had a long conversation about, well, you know, you guys are moving on. I really don't want to, you know, I'm going to leave the firm in a better place than I joined. And, and it doesn't get to the core of your question, which is how do you maintain standards of excellence? Well, peer pressure is a really powerful me mechanism in, in a lot of directions. So why, why does it bend towards excellence? And I think we had this sort of insight that um, the joy you feel, the total, complete joy of working with a great entrepreneur is, in, is contagious. It's energizing. It's the lifeblood of it's the currency of our of our firm and if we look up towards that we can all recognize that benchmark probably isn't going to be around in 30 years I, and bruce said to me 
you don't need to keep me like bench press. Like we didn't try and start this so it would outlive us. I mean, it was a uh, sort of an oh, accident. I mean, that... They did name the firm Benchmark, though. So, Indeed, like... they didn't attach your ego <laughs> to its name, which I thought was a uh, um, telling. Um, and you know, but the idea that this is ephemeral. And, and you said, like, everything's ephemeral. Like, the structure, we don't have any – institution, franchise, all those words make us nauseous because it, it's really – the nature of the business we're in is that we want to destroy the incumbents. And I think we're collectively aligned around being anti-authoritarian, destroy the incumbents. So the last Which thing you want to absolutely become, was the DNA of the founding of Benchmark, absolutely. as we talked about in great detail. And so detail. we want no part of this firm to become the incumbent. And so how do you do that? Um, violent rejuvenation – with a common culture of collective joy in serving entrepreneurs. And if you stay true to that and ruthlessly true to it, then you fire yourself. Because there's a day where you realize, I will not give to the firm more than I take. And in the case of everyone who's left this firm, and I've never seen this in the history of investing, you study all these firms, every single partner fired themselves. And, and it was that ethic that was recursive and you feel it and it's, it's intrinsic. And I think it's also partly because the minute you're in a position to be the incumbent, uh, I'm the last man standing. Um, we're the, I, want, I want my partners to destroy me. That's joy, which means they, I've succeeded. Now we're big limited partners. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's also joy. Uh, one thing I'm curious, uh, what is the relationship of past benchmark partners to this group. Uh, we talked about um, one of the things I remember, you know, from the research and hearing Eric, you and Bill both talk about is with Cerebris, we got to call Bruce. We got to call the old guys. Yeah. Like what, yeah. what is that relationship like for you five? Um, I mean, the official relationship is their LPs. Like that's the official relationship. Like there are LPs with us, like other LPs. Um, the, I think the more, the feeling relationship is, like there you call them and they want to see you succeed for all the reasons Peter's talking about. And, and so they pick up the call and, um, and help and put their network at work to, to help you. And they have a lot of insights and have seen a lot of stuff. Um, I would say one way, one shorthand, they feel more like uncles and aunts than they do like parents or grandparents. That's a great, <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And for listeners who don't know, because I didn't know until Chathan just showed us, uh, the benchmark partners, none of you have offices. Like you all sit at this crazy um, round table. It looks like you're going to war and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you know, trying to put the strategy up on the board. And, um, and like, you guys need a hollow deck in the middle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? We had a poop emoji yeah, sofa. It's <laughs> not officially a poop emoji, but just, <laughs> but, but you have like, uh, there are aunts and uncles with computers over there. Like it, there were not five computers, there were seven, eight, nine. Yeah. I mean, it's we're like, getting rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> not fast enough, but they'll be gone soon enough <laughs> so yeah you're saying that's that's i shouldn't read into that like they're here still parents and uncles it's fine if they visit yeah <laughs> but not stay too long they can watch the kids every now and then but right like, but as soon as there's a real problem it's funny because aunts and uncles say here's your baby <laughs> and literally that's what happens that's whoa, whoa, whoa. this is going to be hard work oh no 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 you're the parents i gotta go home it's great being an aunt or an uncle. You know, I have five children, and I can tell you, I should have learned that lesson. I love my children dearly, but um, my brother's in a good position. <laughs> what? Um, oh, okay, so picking up on that theme, 
one of the things that I always have appreciated about you all, uh, having done some co-investments in past lives and just your reputation in the industry, um, the hard work, what are examples of the hard work, like real examples? We're, we're going like, to dish this to Chathan because I, I know a story. Yeah, I know you have a story here, uh, a very recent one. Um, but then, like the aunts and uncles are not yeah. going to do anymore. <laughs> what, what are the ways in which you uh, get put to work by your portfolio companies, Chathan? Yeah. Well, this, this, this to, to Chathan, and part of the reason he's discombobulated and has a cold brew in front of him, <laughs> for those of you who are watching the video, at 5 p.m., is he got off an international flight three hours ago, or yeah. four hours ago. But was with which, us on Monday. Which we, but was with yeah. us. And decided, <laughs> and decided to go. And decided to go on, on yeah. Monday. Yeah. And today's Wednesday. So here we are, 48 hours I'm later. Can do the math. I'm not as coming. Yeah, I'm not. I'm doing great. Um, <laughs> so, so what are the circumstances that lead to you suddenly deciding yeah. that you need to be in Europe? I think this is a great story of you know, how the firm and we as a group operate, which is, you know, there was um, a portfolio company that was going through an important decision. And, um, you know, there was there was a decision that was made Friday morning. It felt like there was a finality to that decision. It was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then, you know, people go to the weekend, emotions rise up, they have conversations with their friends, and, you know, stuff starts to get off track. And I get a call, you know, Sunday night. It's just like, you know, things are getting off track. What do we do? And, you know, we're all on a group chat. And so I put it immediately in the group chat that says, here's what's going on. I'm looking for advice. And it was late at night. And Eric called me at 11 or 11.30 p.m. And we talk for 30, 40 minutes where we're just walking through everything. And what was so incredible about that moment is when you're in it, it's really hard not to get wrapped up in the emotion and sort of stop thinking logically. And what was great about that conversation is Eric was able to zoom out and say, look, we're in the service of entrepreneurs. We only recommend and guide entrepreneurs. It's ultimately their company. It's their decision. And so... What Eric said on the call is what what I would do is, and what I know you would do is <laughs> some good here's the peer pressure. <laughs> is I know you, Tatham, would do this, yeah. right? Right? Yeah. Which is, you know, if you were if you weren't in the moment, you would you would make the phone call and say, "Hey, this is your decision. I'm here and 100 percent supportive, no matter what." And so we got off the phone. I made that phone call. But also, here's what I think. Yeah, well, no, I think because you've gone through the all of that. The think part had already, yeah, it had like, already been done. Which there is, is no more thinking. It's your like, call. All We're the, a sounding board. You make the call. All the facts, all the reasoning, all of that had been laid out. There was no more logic right. and there was no more explanation required. It was, at this point, it was emotional. And, you know, after that conversation with Eric, I made a call. I just said, it's your company. So I'm that was to Sunday night. You. This that was, was Sunday, Sunday night. night. Then Monday partner like, meeting. This is like midnight I made the call. So you're all in the circle on yeah. Monday. And so we come in Monday morning. We're talking. Um, and then at some point during the conversation, Peter said, this is not a conversation that should happen on the phone or on the, on Zoom. It needs to happen in person. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's do it. Okay, yeah. And then 
I was like, okay, I should get on a plane right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we go, like time to go to San Francisco airport. And then as I was leaving, Eric goes, are you going to come back for the choir thing? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, okay, don't worry, I'll find a way Not to get back. Not only am I getting on a last-minute flight to Europe, yeah. And you have to come back by a certain hour on Wednesday. Um, and what transpired was as I was getting on the plane, that meant so much and set such a positive signal that by the time I landed, everything had just, like, gotten in place. Like I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. Just showing that level of support and commitment changed sort of like all the dynamics, which is like, hey, this is, oh, you actually meant what you said, that you're here to just support me and support us and support the team. And you're right. It is our decision. And and that was it. It changed the tenor of the conversation completely. Um, I would say it's like also broadly a manifestation of like the orientation to investing right like there's yeah. a lot of people who would say of investing oh like we made this bet like you might hear that word a bunch of times oh like well it's a good bet or it's a good risk adjusted bet or hopefully it'll be a good bet. and there's a there's a very passive it's, i'd like to own that asset yeah i'd like to own that yeah. asset it's, it's a investment banker speak yeah. Yeah. it's it's a metaverse yeah. play yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of like pervades a very passive view of almost like trying to super forecast a set of odds and you did the diligence to super forecast those odds and like we'll never we never talk in in that way it's like when we think about partnering with a founder it's not oh we want to make a good bet it's like we want to make a commitment and that commitment manifests like as a group to be vulnerable and honest here and and, and collectively get that feedback and then with the with the founders to be on the field denting those odds right each year Big years and, and and even a couple times in every year, there's, a, there's important moments where you, you can you can tell you can't transform necessarily. We're not saying we got some silver bullet, but that commitment can really change the odds. You know, each of us make one or two of these commitments a year. Not bets. And right, they're not bets. They're and they're there's a level of relationship that then happens with the founders because there's only one or two a year. And it's, and what you end up feeling is that you really just care about every company that you work with and the founders and the teams and everything. And so when these moments happen, it's not a transactional thing of one of, you know, a lot of companies with which you work. It's, you know, a founder that you really work closely with that you know so much about and that, you know, that level of support doesn't feel like something unusual for us mm -hmm. to do. It's something that we, we just expect of ourselves, and that's the relationship that we'll have with these teams. Can, can I ask, and, and this may be, you know, drifting into a, an area that's, that's harder to talk about, and so uh, we can abstract it a little bit away. We talked about Uber on our episode, but I want to abstract it to, you know, how you think about this generally. The role of a general partner in a venture capital firm, traditionally, is that you have a fiduciary responsibility to your LPs to maximize their returns, and you have a, a second fiduciary responsibility when you join the board of a company to the company. And it's hairy enough trying to balance the trade-off that because sometimes those things are at odds. You're representing all shareholders on the company's side, and with your LPs, you're representing you know their interests. And so you then introduce this third thing, which is the thing you care the most about, which is support of the founder mm. and empowering the founder. When do those things get hard? How do you balance those things? I assume most of the time you're indexing strictly to 
we're partnering with this founder and we trust them. But when when do you have to juggle those things? Yeah, I mean, it's um, people go to therapy often. They only talk about the shit that's going wrong. And I think it's useful to think about what's going right. And if there's not a DSM for flourishing, there's there, there's a DSM for <laughs> dysfunctions. We could open that book up and we can have all sorts of flavors of dysfunctional families. <laughs> And I, I think we could do that, and that would be illustrative and informative about how it can go wrong. I would flip it and say, when it works well, what are the preconditions of where you have alignment? And then, and then you look at degradations from that. I think one of the words that's sort of vital to any durable founder benchmark partner relationship is vulnerability. And if, if there's ever caution or pause of, I can't share this information with my then we've um, degraded the relationship and we have to fix that. And you fix trust is fixed intimately one-on-one. -on -one. You have conversations that allow you to zoom up to say, okay, what's the collective purpose? And I think that we could talk about Uber. We could. I, I have every reason to believe Travis's purpose was um, the biggest, most extraordinary Uber imaginable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a collective gaze on that together and 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 in many situations, this was one of them. Pathologies creep in, and you learn this through a course of firm experience, which is when you start to see that happening, you need to act immediately. Because the minute we get othered, and it's not about us and this pr joint purpose, but it's you and me. It's my agenda and my LP's agenda and all that. And I sadly see that with a lot of the other firms in the industry, because it's not necessarily the partner in the room that's got the issue. It's their partners that have told them that they need to do this or they need to do that. And I see it. I'm like, oh, man, I adore you. But your partners, I have different feelings about. And you're here trying to rattle because they've said, why aren't we meeting our plan? And so the entrepreneur immediately vulnerability snaps like that and it closes. And then you have no trust. And now they come to us typically and they say, we got a problem with one of our directors. I'm like, okay. So we'll, you know, we'll have an off sidebar with them and say, what's going on here? How can I help you with your partners? And, um, as much as you know, you look at, at situations where it falls apart, let me give you an inverse story, which is where it really only could work, I think, in this firm model. I was on the board of a company that wrecked somewhere between two to $300 million of capital. And I'm pretty accountable. Now, I should be fired if this job actually had a standards <laughs> and governance and practices. And that company's called Docker. And I was just in Miami yesterday at their all hands meeting. And I remember the and last when you time invested, it was called Dot Cloud, right? Dot Cloud. So last time I did an all-hands meeting at Docker was three years ago, and there were 60 employees that, that we'd spun out of the, um, the prior company, and the valuation was zero. So we'd gone from over a billion, four, billion, five to zero. And I was working with some of the great venture capitalists in the industry on that company. And aside from Insight Partners, crickets, gone, all left, bailed. And I, this is okay. Um, what was different with Benchmark? Insight's another story. Um, <laughs> There's a <clears throat> very fun um, quote that we don't often talk about on the show. I don't think we ever talked about this on the show, but a very prominent firm has a uh, one of their mantra quotes is focus on your winners. And uh, I yeah. think that's what you're talking about here. Yeah. And, and well, at this point, it was, <laughs> a, the, it, was, it, was a, <laughs> it was a pretty big loser. And um, <laughs> but the vulnerability that I was able to have with the team that remained to say we made mistakes, we're accountable to it. Here's how we work through this. Because you know what? If you look up and the purpose of Docker, we're literally, at, this is cliche, it's the beginning. 
you know, we have 30 million developers that use this product every day. Um, yeah, that's and, the craziest thing. Unbelievable product success that completely changed the industry, but like business model, business model and strategic failure such that there wasn't effective value capture. There was value destruction, hundreds of millions of dollars of value destruction. My two partners, I came in and I said, I may be drinking my own bathwater. I, I like, I don't know what to do here. I was really vulnerable. And I said, if I've gone off the deep end, no part of that truth seeking exercise would allow me to spin position, blame, be a victim. Um, I was being accountable. And I said, like, what have I done? And they said, not only do we believe in this company, can we put it in the new fund too? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's crazy. <laughs> I was like, but you're right. If you believe, you have to have that founder level. I always joke, you know, employees can quit. Founders can't unfound a company. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we feel that way in our commitments. We can't uncommit that founder permanence. And, and oftentimes it outlives every executive that gets recruited Um not every, but like a hyper majority of executives. And so this case of flourishing, and, and then that was a case of, um, you know, trust, all these things that come to stress, the LP's agenda, the founder's agenda, the com it's not that hard. You just look up and say, what's the purpose of the company? Let's mm -hmm. resolve around that. And that'll sort the rest of the stuff out. As the, you know, Bezos thing, the long term, there really is no conflict, but in creating, you know, a delighting and a wowing and, and shareholder value. Yeah. Uh, impressing the customer and creating shareholder value. Our customer isn't, it's, it's not the founder. We say it is, but it's really yeah. the purpose of the founder. Yeah. And it turns out so that purpose, if that's the customer, yeah, one of us may be deviating from that and we can keep each other accountable. And that happens internally. Like man, my partner said, no, the purpose of Docker is just the beginning. My God, it's, they're going to get developers to program the global computer. Hmm. Okay, so then you, so you could dust off $300 million of lost capital. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to do um, a big topic we really wanted to cover with you guys in this session is staying focused on early stage, not having a growth fund, especially when your entire peer set has become lifecycle capital providers. Yeah. And I actually think this is a good entry into it. So Peter, the story you just told of like when things are not going right, yeah. the benchmark approach, I'm actually really curious when things are going right. Your competitive set has said, when things are going right, we should go long. We are going to interpret that, I think, in large part as a competitive response to you guys during the fast Fab Four era. Mm. We are going to become lifecycle capital providers. We're going to put a ton of money round after round after round into our best ones. wasn't in response to benchmarks. That was in response to there's a crap ton of fees to make on. Like, <laughs> and, and the founders will keep taking our money and we have the brand values. Yes. That was like a benchmark stayed so true to their thing. That <laughs> okay, I think there are three classes of firms. Yeah. There's a class of firm that fit that. Yeah. There's benchmark. And then there's a class of firm that actually... We're making a strategic decision. We care about Kerry. We're playing for Kerry. We think we can. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and those were valid decisions on, on that third class. But you guys have not done that, mm -hmm. despite, I assume, every opportunity in the world to do so. Why? Can, can we ask Miles? You were the newest to, to join. He's going to try and change that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah. it's funny you ask. This is no. a great point. <laughs> To announce yeah. benchmark growth. We've got an even bigger dining room upstairs. <laughs> How far can we stretch this triangle? <laughs> I, look, I think there is there is certainly um, all miles. of those all of those opportunities to do that. Um, 
I think Sarah says it nicely in, in part, like our job, we're really focused on how do we scale the company, those companies, right? And how as part of that, having a relationship that doesn't get sort of adulted by this question of the us making another commitment decision. It's like we're, we're, we're in and we're not evaluating anymore. We're not deciding what a fair price is anymore. We're not trying to decide... Um, how to maybe make a make a strategic call with a company that optimizes for a moment for us to get more capital in. Like there should be, we want to remove any chance of doubts or alternative incentives or questions in in that relationship, right? So it can be fully fully vulnerable. And if we do that well, and and we've partnered with ideas with great purpose and 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 uh, a long endless runway to work on. We'll scale our success. will scale through their success, and we don't need to scale ourselves, you know, in in independently of those companies scaling. And so, I think we'll all. The beauty of being small is like we'll all do perfectly well. But they're literally like million well. dollar bills on the ground for you to pick up if you were to just put more money in your own companies. I I, I, I totally agree with Malson. And I would just add one thing: is like it doesn't feel like work if you love doing it. What do you love doing? And, and I think that's the biggest thing, which is if you love working with founders, then you want to spend your time working with founders. And that means you don't want to spend your time managing a staff that's scaling. You don't want to spend your time doing marketing to LPs or others. Like, you don't want to spend your time um, meeting investments that are outside of your purview. Like it's just like that's like you want to spend your time with those founders, and I think that's that's the what do you love doing? And and I think that's the biggest thing. I don't think there's any question that over the last few years, the growth investors have done extraordinarily well, um, extraordinarily well. And there was millions of dollars to be picked up doing that. Um, but, but I think the question of like, what do you love doing really resonates. And one thing that's super nice is, you know, the cycles turn mm -hmm. and the strategy persists through cycles. And so I also don't worry about hundred million dollar holes. Right. And we, we were joking before we started, like, I would imagine we were here eating dinner. You, you guys must be licking your chops right now. Like this is your time to shine here in late 2022. Totally. Well, yeah, um, with the caveat that I think we sort of, because we're early stage, what does that mean? It's moved It's a, in terms of its definition. Um, we have faith that every year, some number above zero, companies will be founded that are going to be worth more than $10 billion. And then about every two or three years, a company is going to be founded that's going to be worth more than $100 billion. And it seems to be independent of the cycle. So yeah, things get a little crazier when things are, and they get a little depressed, but the growth fund thing, I'll come back to answer it a little differently, which is that I would like this group, I guess I'm part of this group, to set a high watermark for a multiple on a fund. And I think it's kind of fun to think about, okay, it's great, you can scale capital, but you know, if we had a 20X fund, could we get a fixed 50X fund? I'm not sure we can do that if we start... All we're doing when we're investing more money in late stage is we're lowering our returns. Mm -hmm. That's all we're doing because our commitment is fixed. It's not like we're going to be more committed. So we're, you could say you're getting more cash on cash. Yeah, but we're lowering our returns. And 
the hack of the venture business, which is coupling, you know, capital from other people and ourselves with uh, the partnership that it comes with, I think it's a little more inflamed when you're stuffing large sums of money into a company as it gets, you know, as opposed to keeping it pure. And I will say, like, what would make me proud is if this team, maybe after I'm gone, you know, <laughs> sets a new high watermark. They won't do that with a growth fund. And the rest of it, you know, it's, it's like, should we care? That's cash on the ground. Yeah, but I also want to know with our limited partners say, um, there's nothing like a benchmark fund. And when it works, it sets the pace in the industry. And so, you know. And sort of like there's, a, there's the, there's the quote Sarah and I used with a team the other day, the Johnny Ive quote, yeah. right? Of like, yeah. you know, what, what's focus? I was going to say the same right? thing. It's like totally. focus is when, in some ways, every bone in your body thinks an idea is a really good idea, but you yeah. don't do it. Yeah. And it's about saying no. And and it's it's a fine idea. We would I think it's not to say we don't have opinions on later stage. Later if you stage guys had a ideas billion dollar opportunity fund stapled to benchmark with the same team, you would for sure we, have good returns. It would, it would be one of the best growth funds in yeah. the industry. And we like to think so. But that's we, not we, an if we're gonna if we're gonna do it, but I think to to be able to have that focus that you know, uh, conversation on Monday and our time together on Monday is an hour of roving curiosity of like fertile ideas, the right at the edges that seem weird and bizarre. Yeah, at least you got to be weird. Instead of stage. instead of instead of okay, what's the growth pipeline? And you know, is that a good valuation? Is now a good moment to sort of get in? And and I think it's the the focus is. And we'd have to have a CRM if we did a growth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, that, sorry, like that. It's you know, for us, it is at the end. Like the, we're all here because we want to partner with founders as early as possible in that kind of relationship on the board and anything, you know, to this Johnny Ive, you know, just the focus, like, like anything that distracts from that. And we, we have five people like there's this not, is it. this is it. And like the, the oh, capacity, to we got to ask you about things, the principal program, but we'll come true. back to yeah, that. But the capacity <laughs> to take on more things would take away from our, you know, yeah. getting in the room with that founder who is going to build that next iconic company and supporting the ones that we have. And so we just, we're, we're forced in a way by the constraint of how many people, you know, the SEAL team of six people never being more than that to be ruthlessly focused. And that's, that's what, that's what we're here for. That's super real. I mean, the, the, just to validate it, like there's lots of opportunities that you can always pursue and that seem like good ideas. And like, we have this struggle at Acquired. We're two people. Oh, yeah, like, oh my God. And, and, and there's a thing that we know is uniquely differentiating, which is these like ridiculous deep dive podcasts that are just us. And sometimes we have guests like, wonderful to be here. Thank you for doing this with us. But we know that the most differentiating thing that we do is this like unique format capital. that just we yeah. can do. Totally. And Every time we start taking on more stuff, I'm like, oh man, the golden goose is getting worse. I can mm. feel the golden goose getting worse because we're doing other stuff. You're really good about keeping us both honest on that too. That's a, it's yeah. funny that you use that phrase. I, it, it, in 2008, I was, this is the first time somebody said to me, you should consider venture capital. I didn't join benchmark until 2014. So 2008. And, um, a very famous nameless venture capitalist said, our early stage program <laughs> is our golden goose. <laughs> How much are you in that famous venture capital firm have now? That early stage, from, that's ev everything that we do protects 
that golden <laughs> goose. Longtime listeners will probably know exactly what you're talking about. But. Okay. So, uh, Peter, I just want to clarify something that you said. It's interesting. You define the scoreboard as fund multiple, and it's not total cash return to LPs. I think that's an interesting, like, that's a clarifying mindset about the way that you guys look at this. Like, I what, can tell you, this, I think of it as an LP. And the benchmark fund, of course, again, the purpose is not, we don't come, show up and say, let's drive returns. It's, it's, it, it would be alienating to everything we stand for to think of it that way. It's the outcome, right? Not the input. Um, but I think the cash and cash multiple both as an LP, and it's a real problem for our LPs, I will say, because we have large LPs who look at us and like, why do we waste our time with benchmark? We're a toy. And I, I say, oh, What's yes, you, Can you right. say the number of your largest LP, like what, what their dollar per fund? They're like 25, 30 million. I could get it wrong. I'd probably piss one of them off if listen to this. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just in the, just that's right. listen, in the context of a Any Harvard or Stanford, tiny, like, yeah. that's tiny. nothing. That's barely worth their time, right? It. Um, except when it works. Except for when, we <laughs> <decide multiple>. <laughs> <laughs> right, except yeah, yeah. when it works, it, yeah. it matters. Yeah. Well, our, some of our retired partners are our largest LPs. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, paying full know, fees. Yeah. There are yeah. some discussion yes. among some people in the firm that that over time is the way that the model sort of endures, is that the LPs become the former GPs. It's, it's Anyway, it's not um, – it's hard, it's hard to say that the LP construction – has much to do with anything of our day-to-day performance. I do think this idea, though, of the principle of the firm being um, standards of of asymmetry in our exposure to the volatile material of the startup. Asymmetry is a 20x, 50x, 100x fund. And if we degrade that, it sort of misses the point, you know. And I, w- I want this to be, and I'm already, we're, many of us are this place where our, we pay crazy as a GP, I pay carried interest and management fee to my fellow GPs as an LP. And that's, well, that's crazy. And this, this, this oh, is. Oh, you don't the, get like a GP allocation that doesn't. I get a f- tiny, in my view, tiny little. <laughs> <laughs> now we expose the tension. But for, this, for the super majority of my investment in Benchmark, I'm paying limited partner rates. And management. But I, w- I would say that's where it's not it's tax th- efficient. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but just, this is the point. We have aunts and uncles. We don't have yeah. uh, uh, overlords yeah. that are there yeah. getting their. But to the point of equality, our- right? Like mm-hmm. an equal partnership, like that. That is, you know, mm-hmm. taking it to taking it to every extreme. Point. Yeah, yeah. Along you, the you way, you never want so the, the partner to feel like they're working for Peter. In this case, <laughs> am I understanding this right? That the longer tenure you have as a benchmark GP, the worse your economic deal gets. It's it's the same. Wow, that's a horrible way to characterize it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as your LP commitment goes up and you're paying fees and carry on. You know what? I think the counter The Bruce counter argument, which I think is is 100% right, is it isn't the worst economic. It, it's not a worst economic arrangement because the returns will be higher. So you'd be happy to pay the fees. This is the way. Mike Moritz thesis of if, every successive generation of technology should be bigger outcomes. That's right. Because you're addressing bigger markets. I'll make it more no, simple. Think, you no, cannot get no, allocation to the benchmark funds. And so getting yes. any allocation yes. Yes. is going to be better yes. so than you, the alternative. You're happy yes. to pay the fees. I see. I see. You're happy to pay the fees and carry because 
it works and it's still the best. I see. Your marginal economic you deal goes down, but your aggregate yes, economic deal absolutely. gets better. Your cash on cash, even yeah, though your multiple go. goes down, yeah. <laughs> your cash on cash. Yeah, it's no different about this than we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did spend a lot of time. Yeah, so, so, we wait, all so, learned from the Okay, wait, what, one more thing I want to say, because I think, I kind of think only we can say this. You can't really say this um, on, on the strategy before we move on. Um, I think one of the most persuasive things that we heard in our research for part one about maintaining the model is we definitely talked to entrepreneurs in the current benchmark portfolio who believe that aggregate in the long run, they took less dilution by having benchmark invest and you guys not having a growth fund and having to put more money into them uh, than they would have had you or whatever early stage firm they had taken money from been wanting to put more money in in subsequent rounds. Because just to connect the dots, if that had been the case, then you would be have a conflict as that investor when things are going well to put more money in at a better advantaged valuation for yourself. And you don't have that conflict. Versus, and, and what you actually have is quite the opposite. It's not even, because this happens all the time, where someone is an investor and they're like, ooh, this company's doing well. I'm going to preempt their round and I'm going to see if I can get a slightly lower basis than if they went to market. And so that's firm A. Firm B is a not benchmark firm who also doesn't have a growth fund. They go out and they raise at market rates. But then there is a benchmark brand. So like option C is take benchmarks money. And I think, and, and you guys probably are sure of this, your companies tend to go raise better Series Bs at higher valuations at, with more certainty than your average Series A funded startup. Is that the dot? Is that the picture yeah, that you're sort of? Yeah, I'm just speaking purely in the realm of when things are going right. A company is super hot. The fact that there's not a conflict in a future round allows the entrepreneur to optimize valuation for future rounds better than if you were to try and put more money in. I yeah, I totally believe that. So is this a question we're just selling for benchmark? That's, yeah, no, <laughs> I, just, I, I didn't I, think I, they would say it, but I think it's important. We I, literally, yeah, literally heard that from multiple I, entrepreneurs. I believe that the founders own more of their companies at exit, at S1 time, whatever it is, in this case, for those reasons. And one other really important reason, which is a founder is going to raise a Series B or Series C or Series D or an IPO one time in their career, maybe two times in their career. Yeah. If we're doing our jobs and the people around this table have all, all done this multiple times, and you will help them raise better rounds from better investors, have a better process, um, and get oh, to a better you, outcome. Uh, you'd have to talk to the entrepreneurs that I've invested in, but- I suspect if you were to talk to them, uh, the value uh, that I can provide to them since I stopped being a professional venture capitalist as part of Goes a firm, up. exponentially higher than yeah. when I was within a firm. Totally. Like, ex because there's no conflict. Because there's no conflict. And you can do that. You can do that. You can help them through that, that part of it. And that outcome results in de-risked like the subsequent rounds are de-risked, sure. There's, I think there are a bunch of brands, firms that can say that same thing. Um, there's no conflict. I think there's very few firms that can say that part. And the multiplicative effect of those two plus the help, I think, 
should yield better outcomes. Better outcomes. S- strategy is just all about making trade-offs and aligning all of your trade-offs so that they're a force multiplier rather than in conflict with each other. And if I had to sort of summarize why benchmark works, it seems like every all the trade-offs are actually just thought through very clearly and tried to align them all so they sort of like... Um, uh, they play well, amplify each other rather than conflicting with each other. There, there is one big trade-off with our model, though, um, that I think about all the time just because I'm a paranoid person, which is, at the end of the day, like, our job starts, like, the thing that we have to be paranoid about every day is, how do we make sure we have that first meeting with the founder that's going to build that next iconic company, right? And so much of what we do is about maximizing that probability that we do get to meet that founder and then end up partnering with them. And a lot of firms, I mean, all the other firms outside of us have built machines around that. You know, you have legions of people at these firms. I grew up doing this. I was, you know, an analyst at Bessemer. Right out of college, Cold right? startups, yeah. yeah. And so you have all these firms who have built these big teams to do that. They nurture relationships with seed funds, invest in the seed funds, relationships with angel investors, incubators. Like they have this machinery that's smart because it's all about making sure that every deal, every round that happens, they're going to be in the mix. We, there's five of us, (laughs) you know, and there's always the risk that like a found, that one of those founders who, you know, kind of mistake basically our, our lack of outreach for a lack of interest when it's really just a constraint. And we do everything we can, of course. Like, it's not like we're just resting on our laurels and waiting for calls. We're doing everything we can to make sure that we are in the mix. But at the same time, we are limited. Even and, if you work 24-7, you still right, have a lot less hours. We're than... limited. And so that is, that's the, that is the big constraint that I know keeps, keeps I think, all of us up. You know, just making sure how do we, the founder that is going to raise that round, you know, many are intentional about like, how do I make sure that I'm going to find the right partner for me for the arc of this, you know, the journey that we're all going to be on together, but well, we're still not also there a, um, all the time. You know, you guys at this point have such a, for better or worse, mystique. Yeah. I think for a lot of, especially first time founders that are younger, that are earlier stage, they're probably like, oh, I'm not going to call. I've got these other firms calling me. That's great. I'm going to go with. But like, this, am I going to call this, Benchmark? Like, that seems like, wow, that's a lot of pressure. Like, and that's that's um, that's a potentially lethal risk for us. Right? Because if you think about us being the incumbent and come back to the fact that, like, you know, a number of the people at this table have a lot of capacity in the sense that they could dive in, they can give their all, and, and, and it's they're very available. And so one of the things you think about is the shift in the last 15 years since I've been here. Um, you know, the, the investments that are occurring before we get engaged have gone up by about, a, I don't know, 100x, right. at least 30x. And so... I mean, seed was not an asset class. It seed was- wasn't an asset class. I thought, I didn't know I was a seed investor, <laughs> but I guess I was a seed <laughs> investor. About a third of what I've done is like formation of a company investments, right? And so when... It's so weird when people say to us, I didn't think you were at this early stage because then some people say... You're like, New oh, Relic was incubated We thought we were too office. late for you. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. what, 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 you know... <laughs> Okay. Um, I think our, our um, challenge, and I think you say it well, is that um, I would love to know, which is why if someone sends us something, and, and anybody who listens to your podcast, but I start with the premise, emphatic yes, let's meet. 
because I have always will create time as much as it may impact week. When, when I don't have enough time to take that next marginal meeting, I shouldn't be practicing. And what I would love to know is the people who send it to us say, this is the biggest favor I can do to this entrepreneur is to open this door because the gold plated, whatever terms you want to use, high quality experience they're going to get, it's going to stretch their thinking. And there's so many times when someone comes back, even when we don't say yes and say, I'm so mm -hmm. glad we met because so I learned true. something that so really true. helped shape the course of the company. And the, so the, the point of this is that our, our competitors, if we call them that, they're our peers most of the time, have tried to build vertical systems, which is to say integrate into the very inception of the company all the way through to the last drip of capital going in as they go you know, off of the whatever. Uh, from seed to IPO and beyond. And sounds yeah, uh, and, and familiar to me. Seed to grave. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the strategic um, vulnerabilities we have is that, uh, that people tell stories that we're this way or they're that way. No, we're just like everybody else, but we're highly available to meet and, and we're quite responsive. And the last two or three investments I've made were an example of the following, which is that there's there's an angel in the ecosystem who saw a deal going down and they said, you know, you probably should talk to Benchmark. And when they did, we committed in, in the last two instances in less than a day. Oh, if, that, well, if we knew it was only a day, we would have talked about it. Well, and, and, well, and you would have taken a week if you had one. <laughs> but right. this is illustrative because the system we built is to do just that. And so our biggest risk is that people tell stories. And I think sometimes the stories are propagating their agendas. We're widely available and open. We're, we're, we're most times an emphatic yes for someone who would introduce something to us. And, and, and what we'd love to know is the person who makes the introduction, and we honor this, says, wow, I just did a huge favor for the founder. Now, we have to earn that every single time every we time. meet the founder. Yeah. Every meeting. And we don't always get it right. We, we've screwed up in the past. We've been less than fully present. Okay, we, we, you know, we take that seriously. But um, that, that's, the, that's the vulnerability of the model, which is that right. capital always carries its agenda. Oh, let me tell you about the way we're this, we're that. And it's like, and it's always threatening and, and attacking other layers and like, we're we're hoping that we play a different game, which is like you know serving the founder's purpose and like show up and and be decisive less than a day. That's pretty common. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC two, ISO twenty seven zero one, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe, 
and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. What do you do besides the five of your 24-7 being on? What things do you do to keep your radar operating to, to try and address yeah, this problem? How do you problem? solve that problem? Yeah. We all have different ways. I mean, it's, you know, there is no single way for us, I would say. I mean, I like, I always talk about having an air game and a ground game, you know, and for me, like I, you know, it helps me learn to, to write. And then, you know, you write about things like areas that you're interested in. And that tends to be, it's kind of virtuous loop also of then the founders who are thinking about, you know, building a marketplace or a next, you know, social product, a social network will, see something that I wrote or, or Bill wrote or whoever wrote and then kind of come into the fold that way. Um, and then there's, I mean, I think like you, you have the, the consumer, you know, the consumer lens that you have, you have a little bit of a wider funnel that you have to kind of keep you There's, you never know where these things are going to come from. There's so many different domains where the next consumer company might come. I think like the engine, the B2B stuff, the developer oriented companies are, Closer to the ground. Yeah. I think we all have our own strategies. And I would say the one thing that's always interesting is to compare sort of our different strategies of sourcing and how investments, how we source investments. Um, I was sharing this note internally, which was that I found that 100% of the investments that I've made as a benchmark partner were all sent to us by an entrepreneur. Hmm. And not necessarily an entrepreneur that we had backed. Yeah. It was oftentimes an entrepreneur who had met with us once or twice or we engaged in their process and we didn't get to the finish line with them. Hmm. But they enjoyed the process so much, going back to what Peter said, is they went to the next entrepreneur and said, you should go to the process. Like, just talk to That's them. That's the most meaningful yeah. introduction we can get. Yeah. yeah. And that, it's like, that, that carries so much weight. You have them to one of these dinners. I think it's in part because like there isn't really like a process. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like if, yeah, there's, if there's diligence, people are like oftentimes yeah. founders will ask, oh, what's your process? Yeah. It's the funniest like, question. I, I don't know. Like we're just we're going to explore this together <laughs> and Talk we'll do a chat together. Um, and I think to what Sarah said. So what earlier, you're saying, it's like the Elon Musk's tweets. Yes, it's exactly like that. Let's just text back and forth a bit. What did you do today? Uh, but but uh, to, to, to frame it like um, pr- more precisely, so for founders who are like, I don't, what does that mean? You do as much diligence as you need to do to get conviction. Yeah, and I, I would say, um, I think of it. Uh, the, the experience hopefully is great for for the founders, in part because we're not trying to sell internally. We're trying to truth seek. Mm. And the coming and meeting with all of us, or meeting in small groups of us, is not us like trying to get some information again to like super forecast some odds. It's to it, we're putting ourselves in the shoes because we make a commitment to start working on this and work together to say. Okay, how how will we think about navigating that? Like, where could sort of um, you know full starts or you know local maximas be, and how could we realize the full purpose? And that comes with dynamic sharing of stories and history and learnings from the past. 
And I think you find, um, hopefully, that's sort of leads to a lot of the introductions and, and, and come out of that is in part because it was, it was sort of this reverberation of discussion around the potential that they had and, and how to navigate that correctly. And they got an interesting view on their own business together. Um, and and, and that's, I think the best founders ask questions yeah. on these things. And so, like, one of the things that, that I've noticed is, like, the, the great founders will often use their fundraising process to get right. connections and introductions. And, you know, sometimes it's customer introductions, sometimes it's, sometimes it's just, like, luminary, like, people, connections to people who've been there before you. We just went through this process on a recent investment and we introduced the, the the founder to other CEOs who were further along, and she extracted knowledge basically mm. from them, and in not in a re- in a reference context, but in a literally like, how do you build the company? How did you make this decision? How did you know when you had product market fit? How did you raise the next round? And 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 pulled and build connections that way. And I think I think that's a sign of. That's what it's yeah, like whenever you meet with someone who's worked at Amazon for a long time. It's like scary. You sit there and they're silent and they manage to just extract all this yeah. information from you. <laughs> but, you know, you said like our process is as long as it is for us to get conviction. But actually, I think it's really important that it's a process of getting conviction on each other. And and that should be the greatest part, part of yeah. it is mm-hmm. like this is, you know, I, I like one of the things that makes me sad about kind of some of the conversation in the industry is this like, like just the idea that a board member is just somebody who shows up. It's kind of like, it feels like that's what everybody's been reduced to. And we hold a higher bar for ourselves. Like we, 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 you know, try to have that level of commitment that ends up manifesting in all different ways for the company, whether it's helping close like an IC engineer or, you know, whatever, you know, having those like late night conversations or whatever it is, like that is in the best form can be a really meaningful relationship for the founder from the and from the company from the very beginning. Yeah. And a founder should realize that that is like, you know, of course you get into the, the anxiety and the stress of, am I going to get funded? What are the terms going to be? All of those things. I want to get back to building my business, all of that. But at the end of the day, it is this relationship that you're beginning. And it's really important for the founder to recognize also that they are getting conviction through the process on what it's going to so be true. like to partner with that person. There's this uh, trope in the industry, right, which is you want to be the founder's first call. And it's like I've never really liked it insofar as it's like very reactionary. View. It's like, oh, they'll call me. I'll yeah. pick up the phone and, and respond. And it's a I low think bar. I think it's a, it's a low bar. I think the hopefully founders would say of us, like, we're, we're their best caller. Like, they've, they've been proactive and had the space and thoughtfulness and context and trust to be able to do that. Um, I remember when, uh, when Peter and I worked on Airtable, um, not pretty recent, pretty, um, uh, close to the, the initial investment, um, right after it had happened, Peter, you could imagine it was a decently high price in some ways, like a high multiple. You know, okay, let's press sales, whatever. And Peter, Peter came in and and was proactively sort of shattering the frame and saying, "Let's give away more for free, mm-hmm. right? Like, why why constrain this and squeeze juice from what we have? Let's unfurl this even further. It's a database at the end of the day. Why would you constrain people putting stuff in a database? There's so much that happens on top of that." As you're evaluating mutual fit on an investment, 
between the entrepreneur and benchmark. You know, in eBoys, there's some famous line about venture capital is more a balls business than a brains business. And like, let's oh, yeah. stop using that phrase immediately. Um, <laughs> but it's so eBoys. <laughs> Uh, it's the I, most e-voice thing ever. I, I, it seems to me Benchmark has shifted to become much more analytical over time. Do, do you think about that? Do you think about what the right balance of you know, gut feel and courage versus... Having done analytical things, yeah. I would disagree with that completely. I would say that I we're totally not agree. particularly analytical. <laughs> and So it's still a courage more than a brain space. No, I think it's, it's, it's very like gut-driven. And it's like, it's, um, I would characterize it as like... It's a set of discussions that you have that resonate or don't resonate. And it's like, I really want to commit to this and this puzzle for the next 10 years. And let's go do it. And there's going to be a lot of like fulfillment here. And if everything works and we serve that great purpose that we're all aiming for, then the financial returns are going to be excellent. But there's no sort of like outcome scenario analysis here that says like, here's the 10% upside, bull case, bear case. These are all things that, you know, those of us that came from other places had all done. And one of the interesting things is, you know, watching the firm externally and seeing how this works inside of boardrooms. Like Miles just talked about an example. You know, I was on a board uh, with Peter for a long time before I joined here. And one of the elastic. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that, because I was on a number of boards and I would see all sorts of board members. And one of the things that stood out to me that I aspired to and I modeled a lot of my behavior after was every board meeting, the amount of preparation that Peter would do ahead of the meeting. I mean, he was by far the best prepared board member I had ever worked with, ever. And the number of discussions he would have, the number of calls he would make, and just how present he was in the board meeting itself um, was just so far and above like any other board member that I had worked with, I was like, I need to model my behavior to that because that is the model board member. And I don't think that work, that dedication, that commitment comes from any sort of analytical work you do on the macro. Because if you do, then you start getting tied to your own biases and you never let the company, the founder, the team breathe because there may be a thesis, but you rapidly pivot to something else because it's working or you're getting different signal. And so I think that there's so much of this that is just instinct, gut, feeling, emotion, commitment, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it's not analytical. I think most of the investments we make differs consumer, enterprise, yeah, yeah, marketplace, yeah. like all of them are different in different ways. There's just very little data to analyze, period. But when you're looking at something that's like a consumer social app that seems to be catching fire, like there are things you can know, like viral coefficient or like, uh, how, you know, week and, over and week I growth. Think that a lot of those like, things will lead you the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, uh, the truth is in this market, oftentimes you're making a commitment before there's enough right. enduring data to really know, know what it is. But the way which I, is different than 10 years ago. Which is very 10 years different. ago, Benchmark yeah, yeah, was yeah. making commitments when there was like yeah. like Uber, like Instagram. But, like you know, It was early, but there was data proving it. That, like, I, think, I think of it more as like, um, I always think, you know, in a way th- to make great investments, you have to be okay looking crazy, maybe even stupid in the short term on the outside. Like, and then, but it comes from a place of deep conviction when you're, when you're in front of the entrepreneur and they have, they see something that other people don't see, 
you feel it too. And nobody else who hasn't had that conversation sees it. And, and so from the outside, and you see all the time, like it could be people always critique other people's, you know, investments, like, oh, I can't believe that person did this. I can't, you know, I looked at we, that deal and yeah, that's exactly. Well, I remember when we, when we invested in, in chain analysis. It was when Which all was these your first ICOs, deal here, right? yes, yeah. but it was with all the ICOs were going crazy. Everybody yeah. was thinking about tokens and two people I remember calling me after we announced it. It was like, you invested in a, like a SaaS company. Like, <laughs> shouldn't you be putting the money in tokens or like right. Bitcoin? They're going to the moon. Like, what yeah. are you doing? And you know, not wrong, but also not right. Like it looked like, you know, a stupid investment in the beginning before it can have the, the room. And so I think part of the relationship that we then have with each other is that comfort that something, you know, seeing something that can be contrarian or misunderstood from the outside. And you have to nurture that. Okay, one, so one, one benchmark, uh, no pun intended, I guess, one measure of quality for the firm will be how good our failures are. Webvan was a oh. really good failure. Yeah. Webvan, yeah. we talked about this a lot. Perfect yeah. venture. Webvan was awesome. And I, you, you should know, make that bet a thousand times. The over. shame that most venture capitalists felt towards, maybe contempt towards the venture firm just before I was here, and and it's laughable, it's stupid, and if we start to look like we're, um, which is why we get worried about the long term degradation of. Eventually, we go away, so it all doesn't matter. But I would love for <laughs> us to be. I think we pulled it off in the last fund or two. Like we have a, we have a, Does that include Fund few, 7? A real stinkers that I think honor the fact that we are still just as gullible, just as naive and fallible as the yes, prior generations. Yes. Um, not yet more so, but we're working at it. Yeah. I, I okay, think so some we, of those are really like that's a good – Webvan is a good venture investment. Yeah. Great. Um, and, and I think there, there are a set of them. I think of them in, in my head in recent funds where like – it was definitely a good venture investment. It was a good use of venture capital dollars. It was a worthwhile endeavor. An entrepreneur pursuing that should get funded and they should get funded by the best and they should have, we should do everything we can to give them the best odds of success. And have another partner be on the board. And I think that if you just look at, you know, the last, yeah, I joined right before our ninth fund. And so I've been here through fund nine and we're now deploying fund 10. Um, there's a lot in there that that wasn't, I mean, most of it is not analytical. And I would say like, if you just look into it, you know, there are going to be some bad investments that come out of it. But it doesn't mean that had we gone through the process and we look back at how we made those decisions, it's yep. exactly what Eric was talking about. It's, that was worth the shot. It was like, that was worth the effort. Well, and the the pivots validate why you can't be super analytical. Right. It's like, did you think that the game Discord. was going to be? Yeah. You Discord. guys are the best pivot, <laughs> like multi billion next door. Discord, yeah, next door, Docker, yeah. Docker is a business model. Docker. 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 It's like yeah. Uber. I mean, like learning from Lyft's discovery yeah. of the oh, yeah, so. the UberX model. Like yeah. that's the sure. business. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's like you have some starting theories, and you get you get in the mud. Yeah, and it was always funny reading my old investment memos, and I've only been doing this four or five years, but like uh, the amount of wrong, like, I don't think I could have predicted how wrong I was about what the businesses would ultimately go on to do when you're doing this like ridiculously early stage. Oh, yeah. 
stuff. 100%. That's why we don't write memos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. There's no, no artifact of how we don't, stupid we don't, we don't do portfolio reviews. At least they, these people, <laughs> they, they try and do portfolio reviews, and I, and I don't show up. So um, I do remember one attempt at a portfolio review a while back, and it was like the apex of failure at Benchmark. And you know, I think I have one of those in my portfolio now. You guys can guess. And, and Kevin Harvey said, this one has the dual benefit <laughs> of being a bad idea poorly executed. <laughs> it turns out that a bad idea well executed is a problem because then you give it more money. But, or a good idea poorly executed, well, that hurts because you think, oh, uh, I mean, we can think of companies like Friendster and think, oh, but the bad idea poorly executed is kind so true. Those kind of are the second best investments like, in venture. Like, the, clearly that was wrong. Yeah. It's the totally, middle ones that are totally. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I, I, kill I love, I love right. Norm McDonald's joke. Like, he was like trying to explain the fact when you get in front of you doing a stand up, plus it's already died, of course, is, um, and nobody laughs. And he says, then I start laughing to myself. He's like, here I am. These people have paid money. It's a whole thing. And I just did this thing just to make them laugh and nobody laughed. And then we have a few of those. And if we're not that doing that. That was the early days of acquiring. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. If you're not like doing that, man, like you'll never like, be great. Uh, yeah. Can I ask, I had a really dumb question prepared that we sent over and I want to try and ask a smarter question. The dumb question was, well, to maximize your chances of getting that, you know, great, decade-making company in the portfolio, double the partnership. Keep the same number of board seats, raise oh, twice as much money, double the partnership. That way, mm-hmm. everyone's managing the same amount of capital that they are now on an average basis. Yep. But I would ask the opposite question. If the thing that makes this all work is the fact that all of you can be ridiculously focused and say no to most distractions on your time, could you raise less money and have a more concentrated portfolio? I've thought about this, and I think it's an interesting uh, provocation. There's the extreme, of course, which is to raise no money and just go on the boards and say, we're tired of the hack. It's a hack to take. I'm going to, I mean, tell this is a funny story because you say, okay, oh, it's nice to meet you. It's imagine dating and then you have a relationship. And it's like, by the way, a bunch of people that you don't, you and I, I don't really know them very well. You definitely don't know them. They're going to be moving in and they're going to take up about 20% of your cap table and, and they, their pension funds are very decent people and they're, yeah. uh, noble causes. We do work for noble like, causes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are they on my cap table? And it's like, because you got to work with me. Like, but I didn't choose them. Well, you kind of did because I bring them along wherever I go and I, they're unpacking their stuff right now in your basement and they're going to have more equity in this company than your VP of sales or your VP of engineering. Well, that doesn't seem right. And so, we, you play with this idea and, um, as an LPM benchmark, I don't like, you know, <laughs> there's a limit to the, where you want to take this idea. GP, I think. As a GP, yeah. So, 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 but I think this interesting construct is that what's the residual value that, that is separable from the capital? Bruce used to joke, we can pay a higher price because we add more value. So. <laughs> Isn't there a but benchmark? I think you paid a lower price. Yeah. No, we, but we can afford to pay a higher price and get better returns <laughs> if we add more value. It's a joke. But it, the point is the same, which is that we've, we've confused these two totally. things. Capital, which seems to have been free. Now it's not free. Okay. So now there may be are fused again in capital and partnership. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, you guys have you, done some deals, right? Where you put no capital in. There have been examples. Uh, and we're, we don't, there's some awkwardness to talking about it publicly. One yeah. of the ones that's probably a good example is Tinder. Yeah. And, you know, Barry Diller said, what do you want? 
And it's like, well, we want equity and tender. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yeah. shut up. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> we want equity and tender. And like, but I said, I don't need cash. It's like, so I'm just question- imagining being the fly on the wall of benchmark negotiating with Barry Diller. Yeah. That must have just like, I would, I would pay a lot of money to watch that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more bizarre <laughs> than your imagination can allow. So go there and then go past that and you'll get close. Um, so th- this, this question of like, can we decouple is something that I kind of look at as like the residual value of the, the firm is are we, are we generating multiple equity points in, for a contribution? And I think that's what I would love to know is our best reference, which is a founder is able to say, I look at my cap table yeah. and I look at where the equity went. And, and this is what burns me, which is there's a lot of people on that cap table that say they bought a ticket. You know, mm-hmm. they were in the, they got a ticket so versus they made a huge impact on our total success. And, and that's equity. That was the best return on my allocation of that equity. And every time you're taking on, on, on dilution, you're asking that question of like, what's the return on that, on that allocation? I think a lot of times the return is like, it's a hundred percent towards the person who got on the cap table and not the other way around. And, and that's our ethic. And maybe there'll be a model where we're not going to be CAA where we take 10% and all that. But, you know, the capital light, you could raise less. Why not? I bet if you raised $400 million in your next fund and you have five fewer companies, your scoreboard number, that multiple, could go up. I'm the person that the last discussion of like we were going to do it the same size fund. I'm like, well, why don't we cut it in half? And people thought, well, then people – others will say we're becoming irrelevant. I'm like, oh, no, but it's – Well, it's, it's just so different than they say now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we might one day. Yeah. Who knows? Instead of 425, go down to 200. Yeah. To, okay, go so to 40. Yeah, <laughs> was it 40 per partner per year? Or? Oh, the oh, benchmark God, website. That was oh such God. a good line. <laughs> Other firms are overfunded with over 20 million per partner of capital. Yeah. The Wayback Machine is such a gift to humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, um, okay, so last big topic. I think a lot of folks, we asked a lot of folks in the ecosystem, what do they want us to ask you? We're, we're the vehicle for that universally everybody responded they want to know what is the process what's involved how do you think about who's taking the next seats at this table so how does that work here i think it's like 250 hours of board meetings together. (laughs) It's a 10-year-long process. You have to serve on the board with one of us. We have to watch you grow. And then we say, you know, that person would be You think think Mitch was an exception, Bill? And Mitch had, you know, 200 hours of board meetings together, maybe. You know? Eric, you didn't have any... You're the only one who didn't have any. I was any, just joking. Uh, too, no, 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 I know, but, but, <laughs> but, but literally practice, that seems to be the model of like serve on a board with a benchmark well, partner. And, and that's how you get to know people and build really deep relationships is you need to go through shit together. Like, I mean, it can, the shit can be the company is going really well and we have to react to a super dynamic environment. But like getting coffee every once in a while is not a great way to get to know should I take someone on as my spouse effectively. I, I think that's right. And I actually think it's, it's actually, I was just thinking about it because there, it's been different for everybody, I think. Um, you know, I think the story with Peter is like he was repeatedly showing up competing for investments that benchmark before he was here was working on. You, you were walking out the door as they were walking. Yeah. yeah. And, and so like that's a, that's, that's telling, you know, the story with Miles is Miles was there before. 
Like he he invested in Benchling before yeah. us and Supergrape before yeah. us, um, and was was early on Airtable at the same time. And so like that's a really important like signal. Like okay, you know Chathan had worked with Peter on the board, Sarah. Just, I just glowed by you glowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, Sarah. How uh, Sarah and I, I think, both yeah. had no like no professional overlap. Yeah, yeah, um, in that context. Um, but and who I, made the first phone call to issue? I've lost track. <laughs> Peter um, was the yeah. yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I'm like, I don't think he's lost track. <laughs> I don't think Peter loses track. No, much. That's no. Right. I think the way in is um, something that's. Uh, common what we've heard for the people we've recruited and, and maybe Eric's an example of this um, but it's that they don't want to join a venture firm that, like the only firm they could imagine being at would be Benchmark it's the last job you're going to take so there's this underlying love of the craft and it sounds again a little um, romantic but it's intended that way I, I left Stanford Business School embarrassed that I went there maybe at some level um, and I and I dreamed about getting a job at Benchmark. And Bruce canceled his meeting with me. And then I waited. And then, you know, another time he was late. He sent me a handwritten note saying, oh, I have bigger things to deal with. Basically, is what the note said. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then, like, you know, I think he gave me, like, a T-shirt. I, not, and then <laughs> seven years passed. And I think I sent, like, typically I sent him a note saying, hey, I'm working at Excel just to see if I could catch his interest. And he said, good luck. <laughs> Did that motivate you? Like, were you thinking in the back of your mind? I, like, you do know, you know Peter Fenton? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I was feel like I do. Was out up on your wall? And you're <laughs> he, we, oh, man. And then, board, you just throw it. and then Kevin and I went on a board together um, at a company that was not particularly successful. And I was wondering, why is Kevin doing this investment? And, you know, I said, what does that say about Benchmark? <laughs> and then he, he later confessed that he felt the same way. But the... Uh, <laughs> You know, and then, and then you get you get to work with the firm, and there's something that I would say underneath it, which is that um, the the totality of like I would do the job even if I didn't get paid. That sense of all in, this is a craft, and I so am oriented towards that. When I first met Matt in 2005, when he, he, around the time he presented Facebook to us at um, at Excel you knew immediately that he was going to be in the venture business. It wasn't like, well, one day maybe. No, Matt was going to be a great venture capitalist because the single most important thing we have to do in our job is to partner with, earn the trust and respect, to earn the ability to be a partner and a guide, in his case, to both Reed Hoffman and to Mark Zuckerberg. So you think, okay, he's overqualified at some level because he's you know, these are giants of our industry. And um, if you're doing that, if you're really close to one of the great and you were doing with Ben at Pinterest. And I, of course, knew about Sarah because, you know, we both tried to invest in GitHub. And um, that's a funny story for another, maybe for drinks later. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, so I think if I remember right, another firm did that at a very high valuation. And for the time. A moment that seemed, that, that seemed crazy and was actually a good idea. Well, it was like a, a hundred on... 750, I think, was the post. 100, on, 100 million on 750 post. Yeah. But like at the time for a series, like that was the first institution. There might have been some in. secondary selling. One of the things I found is <laughs> when there's secondary selling, it does tend to clarify people's interest in price. It's <laughs> <laughs> one thing if you're yes. just selling you know, equity on the cap table, but when you're selling your own shares, you start to get really focused on the, but you know, we're not running an auction, but it is the highest price. And you seem to, all of a sudden, you know, that seems to be the right answer. Um, anyway, so, so the point is that it, 
you know, we orient towards extraordinary. So to get close to benchmark, get close to extraordinary. Who are the best entrepreneurs? You know, build that rapport and relationships. And the single best thing that we can see is that you've earned that trust and respect and, and to, to be a confidant, to be a partner to the great ones, you know, or serve on a board with us with one of those entrepreneurs. Um, I guess there's some self-serving interest. We could say, send us your best investments. <laughs> <laughs> that will help. That our responsibility is to be, you know, the, um, the best introduction that you make if you're looking at a great company. And if we, yep. if we don't, if we fall short of that, we deserve to be That's told and, and, and punched in the stomach. Can I, maybe I can ask a, a related question, which gets to Eric's, this is what we love to do and wake up and focus on every single day. And that's, if each of you have a sort of bias on things you're obsessed with, like Chathan, you wake up in the morning and you look at net retention rates. Like it's just your, I don't know, what, I'm trying to come up with some boring enterprise software thing. <laughs> <laughs> But like, uh, like Chathan just like eats, sleeps, and breathes sales kickoffs. Yeah, (laughs) this is getting better for me. This is you're just digging. Chathan is so far underground right now that you. Well, he showed up. I'm really grateful for. He did. He's here. Uh, He came all the way here for this. Are, Are you looking for? There are there are probably a dozen people on a short list that you're like, gosh, we would kill to work with that person. And ultimately, a factor in that probably needs to be there's a thing that they're obsessed with that we need on our team at this moment in the technology industry. Is that part of the calculus? Like, do you look for where do we need additional strength? Loosely. I, I, I mean, I, I think about it and it happened. It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't intentional, um, at least for the part when I joined Benchmark in 2014 at the end of the fab four era or at the whatever, um, as, as you called it, um, you know, the partnership, the four were predominantly consumer investors. Like Peter was working on Twitter at the time, obviously bill with Uber, you know, Mitch with Snapchat, um, and, and discord and Matt having just come off Instagram, um, among others. And, and like, which that's just all that just that you just listed it's is ridiculous. ridiculous. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. And, and so you join that group. And in a way, it was just like the perfect time as someone who had some enterprise exposure. You Confluent. And, and then the, you know, lucky enough, the first investment that walked in the door was Confluent. And, um, for me, and, and so, but now if you look at the group, it, it's almost like, it's almost turned right in in the sense that there's a lot lot more enterprise heaviness that wasn't intentional i don't think um i don't like it didn't come up but it happened over time naturally and i think this is just a, a big element of benchmark overall which is the entrepreneurs lead the way and the markets lead the way and and we're we're following that um in in some sense and hopefully seeing it in conjunction with the market evolving um, but it's less intentional. So when, when Chathan joins and, and does modern treasury, um, as an example, um, like, or Sarah joins and does chain analysis, like you're, th- that wasn't intentional. Like, oh, there's like this big crypto thing and Sarah's an expert in crypto. I don't think she knew anything about crypto at the time, <laughs> or maybe she knew a little bit. I don't know, but that wasn't a, that wasn't part of it. Um, and so I think the, the, the firm evolves. And if you go back even further, obviously the firm had semiconductor expertise. 
Like we have no semiconductor expertise anymore. Well, I guess you do. Well, I, no, well, I have a semiconductor expert. investment. Yes. Different thing <laughs> <laughs> than having expertise in it. And so I think that I think it's just the the market takes us and the entrepreneurs take us. There's, we make a mistake repeatedly, probably once a week in the portfolio of confusing phenotype and genotype. Meaning we hire people because of the phenotype that has been you know expressed because they have experience in areas X, Y, or Z. And the underlying genotype doesn't actually get our um, attention. So you tend to lower your, your selectivity when someone has some background of relevance. The issue that you're seeing at Benchmark today is sort of a question of like, where's the equity value been created? Where, where are the 10 to $100 billion outcomes of the last seven to 10 years? Well, consumer has been a little more ephemeral in that regard or a little harder to, to capture because of the incumbency effects. So what's going on in the phenotype of the firms, it may look more tilted enterprise, but I can tell you the genotype is we are total generalists. So, so I can say very explicitly, I think that somewhere between AI, crypto, and not AR, VR, sorry for the future AR, VR, <laughs> but I think those areas don't have the incumbency of some of the traditional you know, network effect, giant trillion dollar market cap companies. And so our genotype is such that we will then go populate those arenas and, and you'll see us become what looks like experts in those areas, but that's not who we are. Mm -hmm. So is our next partner likely to have uh, some background and experience in an area with high disruption? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it'd be great. We got Kohler to join the firm at the still the beginning quarter of the social, social and the social yeah. over. Who knows? I mean, you could say I, the issue with like a social over is like we have a big problem with incumbency yep. and distribution being constrained uh, on top of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, capitals was at least for a long time limitless. So you, you're looking at things that are little increments at the end. It's sort of like, you know, uh, Feynman complained about this in physics, which is like, if you came 30 years after the theory of relativity, you were sort of cleaning up the, the mess. You third it. Yeah. You whereas the people it. are there, the first three years look like geniuses. Even they were third rate physicists. They're working on first rate problems. <laughs> We're, we can be first rate, you know, whatever, working on third rate problems if we're not um, in areas of high disruption. So what are the areas of high disruption right now is something that we obsess over. Yeah, totally. And, and you know. But you don't think about it as like, we need uh, expertise in that area. I think the genotype is we want somebody that is a roving, curious. There's no great venture capitalist, in my view, that isn't aspiring to be wide dynamic range. This is why Eric is going to become one of the great consumer internet investors of the next decade. <laughs> he doesn't know this. No yet. pressure. <laughs> but you know, John Doerr, Mike Moritz, we so my, my former partner Jim Getz, those are the people who've shown that you can do both. Because the underlying connection with the entrepreneurs, they're not so different. They're, they're, they're similar gestalt and Chathan's next to them. He'll probably beat Eric to the uh, uh, internal. Chathan's dynamic. still gonna be the sales kicker. <laughs> Sarah already crossed the line with SaaS. Yeah. So like no, the game's no, guys. But I think even if you look at the greatest companies, right? Amazon, Microsoft, Shopify, yeah. Adobe, Square, like they're all crossover, right? Like, and even if we took something of high disruption like AI, right? What's yeah. happening in generative media and large language, it's, it's uh, unbelievable. Right. Are LLMs right? just going to be a consumer thing? Absolutely not. Yeah, it's exactly, <laughs> right? Like the, the first version of it might be something like Jasper, right? Which is actually a B2B product. 
But there's really interesting opportunity of what what is a um, what's the version of a Twitch relationship that that starts to form and sort of a parasocial relationship, but it's with a bot potentially, right? An artificial character that has a relationship with you. And is that a oh, consumer thing or is that an AI do, yeah, thing? And we so, just did an LP episode with Mutiny, and they're using GPT three to like generate yeah. landing page content. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I think the technical ex- like we're not, it's not our. The founders and entrepreneurs know the product. They know the technology. Like that's what they bring. That is the thing they bring. That's their invention. And they've discovered the insight. And they've discovered the insight. Here we go. But there's a whole bunch of things that come to turn that technology into a product and that product into a company that's really valuable. And like that's the part that we can partner on. How many success stories are there in venture, and even in, through benchmarks history, of that market was dead, that market is done, or that market doesn't exist, that market oh, isn't real? That's the best time to invest. Yeah, and it's yeah. like the founder figuring something out and having that insight. Yeah. that's the that's the part where you're like you're sitting in the meeting, that's right. you're sitting in the meeting, and you're like three minutes in, and the founder says something that you've never heard anywhere else. Nobody has said, nobody's put a blog post out on it. Nobody, it's an insight. And that insight is, it, that's the magic. Yep. I think like, like yes, if you, obviously. The, yes, you, that's obviously yeah. how it should work. Yeah. And that's why I think I would say, like, to say there's a specific, specific sort of um, set of experience one needed, like, would imply we'd be maybe thesis driven. It's like, I don't think anyone here is terribly thesis driven, but like, we're very change aware. Hmm. And there's the question of that pulling the curiosity and sort of roving into it, not like with physicists with a set of rules we've got to check or a net dollar attention that's got to be a set, but like, I was like, how do you get into net dollar retention? <laughs> Have you had a million dollar yeah. rep? Yeah. <laughs> how do you guys deal with, so in my you know prior life, I was trying to do that for you know a living poorly. Um, one of the hardest parts I found about early stage, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Uh, you guys, and you vote with your feet, you only have one of those moments in the first three minutes of a pitch once, maybe twice a year, maybe zero times a year. The rest of the days can get kind of depressing. Like no. I, you can I, learn something at you every You can learn moment. something at every, every pitch. That's the, that's the amazing yeah. thing about the job is every day people come in and talk to you about something they're experts in. Or you can help someone who is great. Maybe you don't see it entirely, but like someone who's fantastic and help them. And they, and they, they'll teach you something. And you'll learn something and you'll just ask questions and, you know, they'll tell you and you like learn. There's a firm that shall remain nameless. Came in and they said, why don't you have a clock on your wall? I'm like, I don't know. Because then maybe we're in a meeting we would be in and we look at it and it's not so good. And this person said, no, 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 no. We move all our clocks six minutes forward. <laughs> so if it's a bad meeting, we can get out. Because we can say, oh. <laughs> so that's, that's one way trip. to deal with it. We, we didn't do that. Like people suggested this and it happens. So I would just, anytime you go to a venture firm, check the clock on the wall and look at your, and then, and then you know, are they playing that this game? This clock doesn't work, by the way. <laughs> yeah. we, I was looking at it earlier and David and I made a comment to each other like, that is a really subtle way to put a clock in the room. But if it doesn't work, that's, it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. Oh, look, no, it's, not guys, a it's, it's yeah. two thirty. It's time for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's right twice a day. Cl- wait, wait, we got to ask before we, um, we can't, another thing we can't let go. Um, what's the purpose of the principal program? To honor the statement that forced consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds.
Was it Thoreau <laughs> okay. who said that? Okay, you got to unpack that. God, Peter's just on another level. <laughs> and, and just, and, I mean, I feel like I'm... <laughs> I don't know for if the context for, every, there, for everybody but... who doesn't... So you all are deeply committed to the equal partnership model, clearly. We don't have principles, so we have principles. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a way to surround ourselves with a, with a person who we want amongst us all. It pushes us and challenges us as well. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll loosen up the, the response. We don't know what we're doing. I mean, like, and, and Blake is amazing. And yeah. you meet Blake, you want to yeah. work with Blake. So you find a way. Find a way. And, and I think that, is it a program? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, no, but uh, you know, Miles seems to like uh, Miles. He's got a British accent. It's a little hierarchical, so like, <laughs> he should hire an associate. I don't want to work with that associate. Bless his heart. But uh, maybe you call him a junior partner, baby partner. Um, you can call him a baby baby GB. But but he won't be coming to. Um, I'll spare you. Blake is amazing, yeah. and so you meet Blake you and you say you, like you find a way, yeah. and. Um, it's been a pretty good launch pad, it turns out, for people who come in for our non-principal principal program. And, uh, the the I principal think program that you don't talk about that you're talking about. Yes, because we don't want to have forced consistency. Now. Is it false consistency or forced consistency? It was Thoreau who said that, or is it Emerson? It's exactly right, though, which is that when you have a little inner fundamentalist, you need to have a conversation with that person and tell them to calm down. Because, you know, now that doesn't mean we're going to have eight partners and a growth fund. And uh, then there's some hard lines where you just say, but this is, you know, getting closer to people who are um, embody our values, but uh, at a different stage in their career. That's okay with us. You got to break your rules when you, you find an extenuating circumstance. You do. I've and definitely that, found too, like, I, I don't, maybe this is like an institutional version of this, like, the times in my life when I've held too tightly to something is when like that okay, like no. you're okay. effed. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. and so like is this a way to like hold tightly to the thing that's like a core value of the firm, but not too tightly? Like I I think we should call it a fellow, but it, it just wouldn't <laughs> mean anything good. to anybody. But I, and we I, constantly I, constantly orient it to special people. Yeah. And there's, sometimes there's a that, there's a special so, person a like Blake. Yeah. I'd I'd wanted to work with Blake for quite some time. Yeah. I know Sarah had too. Yeah. And we said, Blake. You want to come it. work together? Yeah. Like, let's do it. I would say that <laughs> we don't have associates, but one of us may hire an associate. We don't have principals. We have a principal. We have EIRs. We have venture partners. We, it's just, you're you trying to figure that's stuff true. out. That's true. We have venture partners. You don't do growth stage investing, but you guys did Dropbox. Like, like yeah. we just, yeah. it's just, you come to the table and you say, I want to, I want to do this. I want to go explore this area. I want to go, work with this person and you just kind of figure it out and like it's not always straightforward right because there's there's, people have their own constraints and so you're trying to fit their own model of how they can engage with you and so you just figure it out and so none of that should violate the authenticity of what we do and how we interact with people and i think that's the biggest thing Mm -hmm. that we have to be protective of and that is what we're protective of and the relationship we all have and how we work together as a team. And I think if we preserve that than anything else, the fees are to be used for exactly those kinds of experiments um, and, and, and those types of trials. And then, and you can do anything you want with that. I think this is the longest discussion we've had on the idea of a principal program. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we're here to provide value to you guys. This is the most, so, this is the most how can we've we had. help? How can we help? Yeah. And then, you know, I, I also think about, how we think about EIR. So, you know, um, Eric had worked with Josh at Benchling 
and um, Josh was going to leave eventually and just explore ideas. And it was like, okay, well, why doesn't he just come hang out with us and explore some ideas? And we called it an EIR. I knew Ravi from Heap, and he had left Heap, and he wanted to explore ideas, so I brought him in. Those two knew each other from prior lives, and then they were like, oh, we're both at Benchmark exploring ideas. Why don't we like share ideas that we're exploring? And then they decided to start a company together. It was like, if you which were to- airplane. Which is airplane, which Eric is on the board of. Hmm. And, you know, that wasn't sort of like this, we have a hyper, like, thesis. You have a funnel you're managing for yeah, the EIR we have this program. thesis, <laughs> and we need to go attack this thesis, so let's go recruit some EIRs, and let's go set them up, and let's give them my, none of that. There, right. There's so much um, beauty and amazing things that can come out of just, like, organic development. Yeah, that's right. And opening yourself up to organically finding cool things is, I think, ultimately the goal. All right, what did we get wrong on the episode? Or what could we have done I think a better there was, job? I'll start. I think one of the things that um, you all talked about on the episode was swim lanes oh, yeah. um, and areas of focus. Mm-hmm. And I think what we had just Which alluded to. I, I got to say, it felt extremely weird to be naming each of you in that episode. Like w- when we did our Sequoia and Andreessen episodes, yeah. like these things were about firm strategy and like institution building and programmatic, thoughtful. And then we got to the end of the episode and I was talking about each of you as individuals and articulating things that like you care about and invest in. And on the one hand, I'm like, I feel gross. Like this feels <laughs> really reductive and strange oh, and pointed. And on the other <laughs> hand, it's kind of the point of benchmark that like it actually is just about you as humans mm, and right. not about this like institution and right. strategy and so I think like if you look at even when it was um, Bill Peter Mitch and Matt you know it's it's if you just look at the kind of work that they did they were all generalists then I mean Peter was doing consumer and deep developer tech and you know Matt was working with consumer companies and he was on the board of Duo which was a, a security mm-hmm. and company Asana. and Asana, Asana right mm-hmm. and so um, an AI company. And all right, so no swim just, lanes. Right, and I think if you, as you just look at... You're all at, in the pool with no... Yeah, no, and no if lanes. you just look at the kind of <laughs> companies and ideas that we're bringing to the table on Mondays, that's the thing that you see. And there's a lot of encouragement around the table, which is like, if you're interested in something, something's like really hitting you at the moment, just go for it. Go meet all the relevant people, bring them in. Let's all learn together. Let's figure this out. And it's it's never the conversation that I've seen at other places, which is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Stay in your sector. Like, Well, I went on a drone kick and definitely <laughs> Peter was like, stop it. <laughs> stop droning on. <laughs> the, only, the only way to kill the conversation about drones is if we brought in D-drone. <laughs> and oh, is that, was said, that the, like, uh, the shooting down the drones? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, Eric's like, okay, I got the point. <laughs> and we didn't do that. It's probably done pretty well. Yeah, it probably would have done well. All right, other stuff we missed? You know, you, when, you, when you look at anything from the outside and you were there, you can't help but say, oh, particularly like books are written, because journalists tend to write the story from the perspective of a loner who's projecting this sort of Shakespearean plot. If, if I was there, what was the intention? Mm. And I've read these books about us at Uber or Twitter or WeWork. I'm like, it was so much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you guys did a remarkably good job of capturing the essential primitives of the firm. I don't know if it's interesting to other people, but it is right that this, um, you know, deep commitment to equality that Bob feels permeates to this day through everything we do. 
and from the way we treat our um, people that aren't in the investment team and to, to the notion that, you know, we book most of our own meetings. Like, I, I, you know, we do it ourselves because we're not below anything or above anything. And I think that, that that's the through line that you captured so so well. And I think it was, as you say, asymmetric. And was it in reaction to the, the era's leading venture capitalists? I don't know. But I can tell you that there was a humanity to it that always felt, to me at least, something you, you really you want to honor. Like if benchmarks anything, it's that we're available, we're flat, there's no arrogance. And it, it's uh, you guys got to the central core of that. And that comes you know, really from Bob's history. And it's, you know, they say it's about our companies, right? The founding two or three employees set the culture. And it doesn't change unless there's some catastrophic event where it has to get reborn. But good luck with Elon at Twitter. You know, that culture was set in motion and the, its root system goes so deep. We'll see what happens. I'm very interested. It's a good lesson. And if it does transform, yeah. then that's, a, that's an example of one form of transformation. If it doesn't, then you'd say, okay, this, believe me, people have been trying. <laughs> to fuck up the benchmark culture. And we haven't done it yet, but we're trying. I thought you meant um, Twitter. I was like, yeah, yeah we had no, we, 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 no, no, we can't, we can't, no, no Twitter. We, we have a, we have a, actually, there's been a lot of discussion in the quiet Slack about like, why have you guys not covered Elon on Twitter? And just like, that, no, that's yeah. not what we do here. Through TMZ. Like, yeah, that's, mm. the, we're not the TMZ of Silicon Valley. No. Well, I have eight years of experience there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the oh boy. All right. Well, we should end it on that now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Ah, so fun, David. Man, what a special experience. Thank you to the Benchmark Partnership, too, for inviting us, doing this. Having a pretty candid conversation with us, that's not what I was expecting going in. No, no. They were great. They were very gracious hosts. Yes. Well, we'd love your feedback, too. Uh, Please chime in at acquired.fm slash slack come hang out with us get your sweet t-shirts from the merch store at acquired.fm slash store we also have a dad hat that is limited edition 
um, in part because that is the only way we could embroider it. And so I wanted them to be great hats. And so uh, you can go and, and get that just for the next couple of weeks. So make sure you get your order in if you want one. See, this is how we know that you are not a dad because you're like actually like caring about the details of your hats. <laughs> Once you become a dad. <laughs> uh no, you show up like wearing appropriate hats whenever we go visit various people around San Francisco. I, I often see you in their merch. Like it's a premeditated decision. Yeah, it, it, it is, it is. But that that's without the kid. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So. Uh, all right. Well, uh, LP show, if you want to listen, the episode with Jale was awesome on the B2B profitable growth playbook. Uh, her story is super impressive. So check that out. Becoming an LP at acquired.fm slash LP or searching LP show in the podcast player of your choice. With that, listeners, thank you. Our thanks to the very good people at Benchmark, and uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth?